Hey guys, I'm Calvin L. Williams, and this is Documenting the Journey. We talk to operations and thought leaders about what are their greatest challenges, what they did to overcome, and what are they most excited about for the future. Join us on this journey and run a better business, create more value, live a better life, and be inspired by the spirit of continuous improvement. And I am especially excited today. I'm with my good buddy, Bo Keat. He is an experienced lean and operations professional who has taken continuous improvement beyond the traditional boundaries. And hopefully we can dive into some of that conversation today. Bo, how you doing considering the circumstances? So far, so good. I don't mind working out of my office and I'm doing just that now. So fun. Good. <laughs> yeah. So self-quarantine mode, I take it. You're in uh, Michigan, right? Yes. We have fortunately dropped from the third worst to the seventh worst state in the last week or so due to just the issues that we're dealing with here and also others getting worse. Oh my gosh. So third worst to seventh worst. Yeah. Does that mean you got better? What is that? How, how, do, I, how do I interpret that? We, we're not growing as fast as others. Oh. That, that's really what it boils down. We're, we were growing faster and now our growth has slowed. Yeah. And others are overtaking us. So it, it's a weird dynamic when you see the stats saying, oh, uh, should we feel good about this or not? I mean, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, improvement is improvement. I mean, you're still in the bottom 20%, I think. Right. But, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> better is better. Better is better. Yes, we got to take that for what it's worth. So, yeah, they're uh, they're protesting. I didn't see you out there protesting, did I? Is that what I saw? No, see, this, this quarantine, this self-isolation means we don't go to Lansing and take off our masks and run around with signs. We actually stay home. Yeah. Okay. That, that that makes more sense to me, actually. I was I agree with you in that. I think your rationale is sound. That's a mild political comment, but I, I am I'm concerned for the health. I, I mean, I, I don't have anything against protesting, but I'm concerned about health right now. Yeah. And the thing about this uh, is it's not just the people out making bad decisions. It's the people that they infect as well. Right. Right. So it's you're not just thinking for yourself. You're thinking for the population in general. Yeah. I wonder if there's a way to protest only online. We can start right now. We can start right now, Calvin. Let's go. <laughs> Maybe we need a website for that. Protest.com, yeah. right? Where you could protest only online. Yeah. That'd be hard for the news people to cover. There's no news cycle there. I, you know, that, that could be difficult. It'd be hard. It'd be hard. You take the physical element away. It's, uh, it's not quite the yeah. same. It doesn't have the same effect, yeah. I think. All right. So, Bo, thank you so much for making time to chat today. Really excited to have you on the show. If you don't mind, just walk us through a little bit about your background and, and tell us how you got into continuous improvement. Sure. Thank you. Uh, I think the beginning of it was just a love of manufacturing. Uh, I just really got into manufacturing. My dad was managing five manufacturing plants that made pipe couplings and fire hydrants around the world. Wow. Okay. Yeah, so I, that led me to getting an engineering degree and then an MBA uh, a long time ago. And then I went to work in a shipyard, a commercial shipyard and in the U.S., which is no longer existing. There are no commercial shipyards in the U.S. anymore. Yeah, interesting. Uh, and then I got into shipping and then I got, got into consulting. I always wanted to get into consulting and I got into consulting in 1984. 84. That was a good year. Yeah, that had kind of management consulting type flavors and legs. And then in 1986, I had an opportunity to get into what is now known as continuous improvement. I was managing a small group of consultants 
and we went, went into a Ford plant in Sharonville, Ohio, that made uh, transmissions. And we were inserted there, inserted there from corporate, not from the plant. And we weren't really sure that we were wanted there. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. But the plant manager said, listen, I'll give it a shot. Just I'll give you a piece of uh, this this uh, plant, which was 500,000 square feet. Uh, that was, And the whole plant was 2 million square feet. So we got about a quarter of the plant. Hmm. And he says, I don't care what you do. Just figure out a way to make the parts cheaper, better, and faster. That's it. Go do it. Yeah. So the, the, the unique thing about that, if people weren't around back then, is we had no metrics. <laughs> we didn't have nice metrics to be able to compare one process that broached machines to another process that heat-treated uh, parts. Interesting. We, we didn't have a way to compare and contrast how well they did and where the opportunities were, and there were no books on this stuff back then. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So we really had to say, well, how do we start looking at these things, not only to understand what they're doing, but understand where the true opportunities are when they put everything together. Right. So we had to create this stuff from scratch. And that was, you know, it seemed like a challenge back then. But looking back, that was like fundamental. Like, really? You did that? Uh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. what choice did we have? <laughs> so so we... That sounds like some, some real brain-wrecking activity. Well, it was hard. We were stumbling for a while. I mean, I mean we, huh. we made good buddies with the uh, UAW because we weren't trying to take their jobs away, but oh. we didn't know what to do for a while. We really had to think about it. In in a union environment on top of everything else. Yeah, yeah. And so we were the uh, we were told we were also the first consultants not to wear a suit on the factory floor. Oh, so that, okay. that was helpful. Yeah. Uh, any, anyway, we, we got through this. We succeeded. Uh, and by rearranging the, uh, the equipment, we found enough space to add another assembly line. So they actually increased the production and the employment at that plant as a result. Oh, dang. Nice. Everybody was happy. Everybody was promoted. And then the folks who really did well in management left the plant. They were promoted out of the plant. That's that's a that's a fantastic story. Yeah, well, that that's a really good side. The downside was I'm not sure they did enough thinking or helping think others think. So I think some of it was lost, but they did well in general. But they let, they lost the ability to, to really move forward more. Yeah. Okay. But that was good. Right. Then I, I took this through other industries, uh, the thinking through other industries, and I then things started to pop up like SMED and things like that. Finally started to get uh, some traction, some books out. So we started to learn more about what people were formally doing. In 1992, I, I think I was the first, if not among the first, to take that thinking off the shop floor. Right. With a job at Johnson & Johnson inside the office and their, and their supply chain, the, the paperwork of their supply chain, not the material movement. Interesting. Okay. I spent some time there and then J&J got me into a hospital in 1995 which was way ahead of anybody else wow okay and so all of a sudden i was thinking okay i used to do this in manufacturing then i figured out how to do it in a paperwork environment and now i'm in a hospital i haven't been in a hospital since i was born well this is interesting so we worked on uh knee and hip replacements and how do you <laughs> wait, wait, how, wait. how do you look at that so you hadn't been to yeah. a hospital since you were born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that one almost well, slipped by me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they came. I, I actually was um, 
approached while I was making copies of copy machine like six o'clock at night. Oh. And everyone, everyone's left the uh, the J and J office. It's very quiet there, so I can get some stuff done before I leave. And someone approached me and said, hey, "Have you ever taken this stuff to a hospital?" I said, "I haven't been in a hospital." <laughs> so, oh my gosh. So it was very interesting. It, seriously, I, I will never forget that conversation. It was really, really interesting. Well, do you think it might work? Yeah, that's a whole new world. I mean, you talk about SMED and stuff like that. So I'm curious, right? The the approach you might take in a factory, you know, because a factory culturally, mechanically is a very different environment than what you would see in a hospital. How did you transfer those skills and way of thinking from a factory environment to a healthcare environment? It's it's so what was what was embedded in me was how I had to think about getting my hands around something I didn't know. And that went back to Sharonville. So we, I, did, I mean, I knew manufacturing. I didn't know crap about how to analyze it. Hmm. So I said, well, then, then how did we think about that? We, we thought about the work. Okay, how did we think about the work? Well, we kind of took a look at what was being done and what looked stupid, what didn't look stupid. <laughs> and we, I don't even think we had the term value add at that point. That, that was right. kind of a new thing later. The language wasn't even in place. Yeah, so, but there was inventory. And... And so I started thinking about these processes, which was really the sales and marketing processes of moving stuff around between the distributors and the hospitals and stuff. Mm. And so there was inventory, but it wasn't the inventory I was concerned about. It was the activity around the marketing effort and things moving in and out, the distributors and the wrong things going different places and stuff like that. But a lot of it was driven by the actual office work. So I said, okay, then how do I start to look at that? And I had post-it notes all over my desk. I bet I had 150 post-it notes that were activities. Oh my gosh, the stickies. And I was just trying to get my head around it. Yeah, just how do I start to understand all this stuff? Hmm. And it literally, it looked like a mosaic. And that was the that was the genesis of saying, how do I think about this off the shop floor? Because it is work, but it's there are no widgets. I remember several things in my life, and that's one of them. Yeah. Uh, that and and on the Sharonville floor, just scratching my head, saying, "What the heck are we doing here?" <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> so, so. I just I just picture you walking into that hospital, and those folks looking at you like you've never you you've never worked in a hospital, but you're going to tell us how to run this business. Right. So what was interesting there is I'd already figured out that I need to be able to measure processes. Now we did not have the term value streams back then. Hmm. That was four years prior, four or five, five let's see, four years before the term even hit the press. But I knew that a process map itself wasn't good enough. So I had these custom post-it notes created. I still have a few. And they had metrics wrapped around this post-it note. So you wrote what the activity was, and then you said, how long does it take, cost of it, uh, the quality of it. I had all these little stickies around so we could measure processes. So we had this butcher paper on the floor hmm. and me and the nurses were on our knees running around putting post-it notes down to try to figure out what really happens in here and <laughs> how do we describe the process. So, Oh my gosh. It was, it was fascinating. Man, you know, it makes me realize how privileged I am to come up in a, in a world where there's this whole language and this whole lexicon around continuous improvement. Uh, I guess I just take that for granted. Right. And I just assume yeah. it's been around forever. But really, well, I mean, that was a time when you guys were talking about stuff, talk, maybe talking about the same thing and, and, and uh, having a completely different understanding. Yeah. Because there wasn't this common language. Yeah. So we had pop up tools. I mean, they'd pop up in a book. 
Like I, I the uh, the original Smed book, I, we I was actually taught from the draft. Hmm. I still have the draft. It's a, it, uh, it 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 was unpublishable because it was a literal translation of Japanese. It was just a crap book. Oh my gosh! But uh, but I still have it. And they taught me from it. I said, oh, this is very interesting. Look at this. You could reduce setup time. <laughs> so, yeah, huh. so it, you know, it's, it was wild stuff back then. Wow. That had a pretty nice path right then because I also had published a book with uh, Drew Locker on the Complete Lean Enterprise around 2005, so running into that line. And all of a sudden, I was busy doing value streams all over the place off the shop floor, which was unfortunate because I loved manufacturing. But I also saw the biggest need is off the shop floor. Yeah. We've been hiring industrial engineers for 50 years to, to microanalyze every little nook and cranny of shop work. Captured all the low-hanging fruit by, by this time. Yeah, huh? but, but the, you know, the office was, uh, was a candy store for improvement oh, people. Yeah, I bet. There was just huge improvements. They never thought about it there. So it was time to start thinking about how do we really think about where the, all the labor is? Because the labor was no longer on the shop floor. Right. <laughs> Everything was automated. Yeah, if you, right. If you look at the percentage of labor now, it's what, 90 plus percent off the shop floor for a manufacturing environment? Well, I guess you can also look at it like the, you know, the, the front office is like the command center, right? It's, to, it's yeah. the brains of the operation. And if the if that part of it is inefficient, you can imagine how many bad decisions translate into more work on the shop floor anyway. So if you can make the front office run better, you can probably make the entire company run a lot better. We would actually document on, uh, I guess they were value stream maps by then, where we were constrained by something happening in the office. Right. We can't do better because of X, Y, Z in the office. Like the purchasing is crap, they're bringing us crap stuff, or quality QA is overlaying us, or engineering doesn't get us the stuff in time. We, we would actually note that on the map to say, here, we can only do so much mm. without looking at those processes that support us. Uh, to do better. Those inputs, right? Yeah, yeah. We're dependent on them. Yeah, yeah. So then what happened? I continued with the service and office and healthcare stuff. But what changed is the mode in terms of what I would actually do. And I started to shift into more of a coaching and facilitating role and finding ways to, in in my vernacular, create create internal capability. Ah, Okay. So the mainstream consulting, and I was, I was a, mainstream, a mainstream consultant when I was at Ford. I worked for one of the big guys. Their mode of operations is to parachute a bunch of consultants down there on a, on a weekly basis for months or years. Oh, boy. And to do what, Kaizen events and stuff like that? Well, whatever. Yeah. All the analysis, all the change, but it's all their thinking. Right. So, they, so as a result, the client never learns how to do this well, never learns the critical thinking. That's the thing, right. So they become dependent on consultants. And to take matters to the worst, right now in the pandemic, these clients should be able to figure stuff out for themselves. Yeah. But if they haven't been taught the critical thinking, they're kind of stuck and in chaos and not sure what to do because they never had to worry about this before. They always had a consultant tell them what to do. Exactly, right. So. So that's when I started thinking, you know, if we don't start creating some internal capabilities, there's, they'll never be able to stand alone. Yeah. They'll never be able to say, I get this. I'm going to move forward on my own now. Teach a man to fish. Yeah. And he can feed himself forever versus yeah. fishing for them. <laughs> right. And 
and there's a lot of you know it, it's a it's a different model of consulting and it's something I'm much more comfortable with. So I look at that more like coaching than consulting and, and teaching, just teaching. Hey, teaching. Here's something you need to worry about. Here's how. Here's a couple of ways to think about it. Why don't you go try to do this and we'll work together. Uh, in, that's a thumbnail sketch, but that is actually what happens. Then. Yeah. So. I'm very comfortable with that, and that's been going on for, I don't know, 10, 12 years. I guess I didn't know the automotive industry was so consultant-dependent at the time. I don't know if they still are. It kind of made me uh, sort of uh, – it kind of alerted me when you said that this group of folks saw you guys come in, and the first thing they said was you the first consultants to come in without suits on. Yeah, It just uh, impressed me because, you know, I come from a background in manufacturing where – most of the folks on the shop floor have never seen a consultant. <laughs> so it's a, <laughs> That's probably a good thing. It's, so, it's uh, probably a good thing. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a different culture, it sounds like, in the automotive or what the automotive space used to be like. Yes, and, and the big consultants back then, and some of them still today, uh, were part of auditing firms. Well, the auditors always wore, consult, uh, wore suits. Mm. So we were expected to wear suits, too. And I, and I heard we were going into a two million square foot dirty industrial facility said i don't want to wear a suit there are you crazy <laughs> yeah i know right yeah it's kind of impractical okay so from all that i mean from automotive to healthcare, what do you feel like were your your most important discoveries and takeaways from that experience it's almost as though i've taken hard turns at different parts of my career when i when i saw something that made sense and i couldn't do what i used to do anymore and, and I've had several of those that have helped me along through the decades. And the first one I already kind of talked about in terms of don't do all the thinking right. or any of the thinking. So it, if, as soon as you start to say things like, well, I think you should do, or here's what I found. Exactly. Or things like that. All of a sudden you've robbed them from the thinking. And so in order to have them do the thinking, it's actually a better product and it'll actually work. Yeah. Uh, all, all the consultants who do the thinking, who who throw down solutions, they're never the right solutions. Exactly. They, they don't right. they don't take in context the culture. They don't take in context the actual work content of the people who have to do it because they aren't doing the work. They're just looking at the work. Yeah, and it's, there's also an element of the people who have to do it. Do they want to do it? Right. Yeah. They may yeah. they may act like they want to do it to 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 get you out of the building, but. Right. What happens in a month or two months or six months down the road? Are they still doing those things that you sort of imposed? It, it usually not. <laughs> it's been my experience. Exactly. That's exactly right. Uh, because they weren't included. It was forced on them. No one asked them their opinion. Why would they buy in? Yeah. And they're there every day, yeah. right? They, they look at, they're staring the problem in the face every day. Yes. That's, that's something, that's something I've, you know, come to understand too, as a, Growing up, coming up as an industrial engineer and getting into continuous improvement and learning, kind of becoming more considerate, I guess, as a, as a mm -hmm. professional, is that the people closest to the problem are also the ones closest to the solution. Yeah. Right. And they're actually the experts. They're the experts. Right. I mean, we, we can help facilitate a conversation. We can help yeah. facilitate the problem solving analysis. Right. But at the end of the day. They they essentially should be the ones coming up with the answers. Yeah, yeah, and, and that also it that so that's also true in the office and service and healthcare. It's true everywhere. Right. The people doing the work, whatever work it is, they're the experts. I know if I was to go tell my wife, you know, we need to do more five S around the house, that would not go well. No, it would it would not fly. No, she would be like, yeah, you can do five S. You go in your your space and do five S, but that's about as far as that's gonna go. 
But but what does work if you say, hey, I like to do some cooking too. If for the things we use a lot, maybe we should have two different places in the kitchen for them, like spices or spoons or whatever. So you have your stash over there, and I'll have my stash over here, so we don't bump into each there other. There you go. That works well. That that <laughs> does that does work well. There you go. Especially if you're going to upkeep and keep your own area clean too. Oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 So the next the next thing I I ran into was uh, the realization that you can't change the process without changing how you manage the process. Mm, interesting. Okay. Because the work and the manage the management of the work are linked at the hip. They are. And once you tear it away and say, "I'm going to change the process," oh, by the way, the managers can act the same way, asking the same questions, doing the same stuff. You can't do that because be, be, now you have a gap. Yep. And whenever there's a gap, you know who's going to win. The boss is going to win. That's right. There's a conflict. So the process shifts back, to, regresses back to what it was. So you need a parallel path. If you're really talking about process change, you need a parallel path of getting in front of the manager saying, listen, in order for this to work, management has to change how we approach this process. So you could. Oh, boy. So you can use the shingle model or you can use coaching models. You can do all sorts of stuff. But one way or another, if they continue to act the same way the process will never progress. You know, you get into a territory of uh, what you're saying. I don't, I don't know if that's going to sell well. <laughs> it may not sell well, but look at the result. But it's the truth. That's so, the problem, right? Yeah, it's, the, so, it's the reality. So, yeah. not, not, always the, not always the truth sells, right? But that's the right. thing, though, right? I actually had a, I actually had a client recently who, uh, who I was coaching. You know, I was sort of indirectly coaching the, the president but I was coaching the director more directly and, the, and then the supervisors too. Yeah. And uh, one day I go in, I would go in weekly, right? And uh, spend the day there one day a week. And uh, one day I go in and the president says, Hey, why don't you uh, go out on the shop floor and, and coach the, you know, the leads and the, and the operators a little more too. Right. And, you know, it's, I was, you know, I was a contract working with them, helping them. They were my client. And, and my first inclination is to say yes, of course. Yes, and then figure out how later. But this was this was a one where I really had to take a step back and ask myself, all right, so what's going to happen if I go out and tell one of their leads to do something? And then later we find out that the boss doesn't want them doing that. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. And then it becomes, well, Calvin told me to do it. <laughs> Yeah. So, right. So, so, so it's almost like I don't know if I can really bring value by doing that as much as I can by helping you change your way of thinking to be more scientific and more systematic in the way you approach your people and help, you know, you help them set targets and you hold, you know, you go through the daily coaching cycles with them. Because, yeah, I mean, what happens with training is people learn something in training, they go out on the shop floor, they try what they learn, and then they get in trouble for trying. Because the boss doesn't understand what they did, right? Or agree with it. Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's difficult. That's a very difficult difficult situation. Um, I actually have a a uh, webinar. I think it's tomorrow with uh, AME that talks about gemba walks and coaching. Yeah, good. One of my challenges is when you do a gemba walk, what do you actually do? And if if you make suggestions or if you coach the front line. That's a problem mm. because the person who's supposed to be doing it 
is the frontline supervisor. Exactly. You just subjugated that person and just tossed them out saying, what he says doesn't matter, what I say does. Exactly. You sort of subverted their authority. Yeah. So why do you want to do that? Because you should be what you should be doing is working down the chain saying, I can walk and look all I want to, but the people I should be coaching are my direct reports. That's right. They should be coaching their direct reports. That's right. That's, that's the chain. That's the chain. As much as I don't like the term chain of command, yeah, I see a lot of value in, in that regard of coaching, especially to respect the chain of command. Yeah, because we're all trying to help each other. You can't build capabilities if you say, I'm the only coach. Or what they coach doesn't matter. What I coach does. That no, that's just stupid. It is. So people fall into it. If if you're having to coach somebody somebody else's team and direct reports, then there's a problem. Right. 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 Why isn't the person? Why isn't their supervisor doing it? Right. That's the coaching right. opportunity that's missing in the chain. So yeah, that's, that's where the focus needs to be put. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> this is me interviewing you. That's okay. No, no. I, I like your comments. It, but it's fine to go down to the Gemba and see what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, you should. If you're a manufacturing geek like me, I want to go look. Hey, isn't this cool? Yeah, right. But coaching and problem solving with people who do not directly report to you is out of bounds. It is. It causes other problems, right? Yeah. It causes yeah. other problems. So you mentioned the the webinar with AME. I actually yes. would love to be there if I can. I'll have to check my schedule uh, if it's open to the public. What what else are you working on nowadays? I mean, what's uh, what's your focus for for continuous improvement as of today? A couple things. I'm actually looking at higher education, which is a totally different conversation. But since you asked the question, I am absolutely convinced that we are graduating underprepared students. For the workforce man that is such a such a big big thing i why did i have to learn about continuous improvement in the middle of a ford plant right getting arrows shot at you a, a, after two degrees why did i have to do that hmm. and it's still happening for the most part so so if you take a look at colleges and what they're what they're uh, actually teaching students now it's all over the map you could have a full degree in it you could have four hour credits into it Hmm. You could have a course or maybe a semester into it. There's no consistency in terms of duration and there's no consistency in terms of content. Yeah. And the reality is I probably use 5% of what I learned in college in my real life work experience. So now that we're into an economy where if you don't adapt quickly, you're out of luck. Yep. Why aren't we preparing the students more to be more valuable once they hit the ground running after a degree. And I'm really, I'm truly concerned about that. So that's, that's, that's my overreaching thing. In fact, in fact, one of, one of my reflections is that I should not have been so successful in this business. Hmm. And the only reason I am or have been is because they didn't teach well in school. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> you got to draw the, you got to connect the dots on that one for me. Yeah. So, so I call teaching in school, the OEM. I got it from the source. Yeah. Okay. I'm with you. <laughs> I'm the aftermarket. That's true. <laughs> Be- because you didn't get it, I'm here. Right. There you go. So, huh. so the only reason that I got half my work is because the people inside the clients had no idea what continuous improvement was. That's a good point. 
And that that sort of makes me think about what Mike Rother is doing, where he's focusing on almost elementary level school kids. Yeah. In teaching scientific thinking at the elementary level. Yeah, that's great. I think it's awesome. Uh, so so I, I'm looking at this educational gap saying, how do I get, how do I get my hands around it? And I was introduced to uh, some people at a uh, Central Coast Lean Summit where we decided to get together and form a little group to see what we could do to influence the educational system. So we had some academics and we had some non-academics who, who were tenure consultants working on it. And what we found out, so we've done some good stuff, but what we found out, the, the bottom line is academia will do it on their own timeline. Right. And it's not a very long, it's not a very short timeline. They need lots of research. They need a few books written. They need all this kind of stuff because the bottom line is you're asking people to teach this stuff who have never understood it. Exactly. And a lot of them don't have the professional experience to have gone through the cycles to even understand it, really. Yeah. And their thesis had nothing to do with it. Exactly. So right. how do you how do you start this? And so I, I understand that. And now there's a whole bunch of Ph.D. students uh, that are looking at continuous improvement type things in the research. Is that right? I think that's great. Interesting. Yeah. But it's. It's going to take a while. Are these folks with professional experience or are they straight out of academia in, mm. in doctorate's programs? Great question. Well, uh, it's a mix. Okay. Because when I listen to their presentations, I'm shaking my head saying, you don't know anything. <laughs> <You're> practical. <laughs> oh I mean, I understand what you're trying to do, but but what you're, what you're suggesting as possibilities, that doesn't exist out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, it's just a little, little transparent uh, on the. Uh, oh, so, so I'll, I'll get, I'll wow, give you a good that's example. Interesting. I'll, I'll give you a great example. This is funny. Um, th these are well-meaning people, and and I and I hope the I hope the best for them. But here's a new PhD student. Uh, she has uh, like ten minutes to to talk about her thesis, and get combats back from peers at this conference, and I'm listening. And she says, "Well, I'm worried about the the re readmission rate at hospitals." I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, this is really going to be really good. Yeah. Uh, and she says, um, so oh, 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 I have a mental blank. I forget what the magic number is. Is it 90 days? 60, 30, 30 days readmission. So that, that's an actual statistics that, that, that a statistic that hospitals have to report to the government, period. How many patients were readmitted within 30 days? Okay. Period. Good. That's that's a stat. That's a, that's so a good says, thing to, to track, I think. Well, it's a defect rate, isn't it? It if is. If you think about it. Right. Uh, so why are they coming back? We didn't do something right. Right. So I think it's a great defect rate. There, there's there's stuff inside there uh, that says that, that it's not just the hospital's issue, but that, that's an, that's another thing. Right. But anyway, that's a stat. Yeah. So um, she says, I'm going to look at how this might be abused by holding uh, patients back 31 or 32 days so they don't get admitted like from a nursing home or something. And I just, what? my jaw dropped. I said, what are you thinking? They could die. So so they <laughs> need to go back within 30 days, but you well, yeah. tell, don't but, don't let them come back just so the metric looks better. So you, so you can game, so you can game the metric. Oh my and gosh. I, I, I sat there staring at her and said, I understand your position. This does not happen. It doesn't happen. You might have got an A on your report, but you just broke the world. <laughs> yeah. So, so I actually approached her afterwards. I, I talked to her. It, I, I 
you know, I, it, I was very calm. I put on my best coaching face. Oh, my God. And I said, listen, listen, there, there are a lot of things going on. To begin with, the person who sends them back is not an employee of the hospital most of the time. Right. Second of all, uh, if they're in a nursing home, the nursing home doesn't want the patient to die on their watch. Exactly. <laughs> so if they're getting worse, they're going back. So and she so she listened for a while. I said, okay, okay. And then she saw me at the curb uh, waiting for a taxi, and she walked up to me and said, I wanted to thank you for what you said. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> I want to thank you. I want to thank you, too. <laughs> Yeah. So, so, oh so my gosh. the bottom line is, so that's an example. Hey, we're trying to get the right uh, information out. We're trying to get people educated. It's going to take a while and yeah. I accept that. So, yeah. but that's, that's really what I'm going to do. I think within continuous improvement, there's an element of practicality that goes beyond just about anything else because it's, it is science-based. It has to work, right? Right. It's not just, right. Hey, we did the analysis and we did something. It's did what you did work. <laughs> right. Did it work? Right. And it should show in the metrics. It should show. It should be visible, right? It should. It should be evident that what you did was was effective, or did it cause other problems, right? That's right. That's a lot of the time. That's a lot of uh, a lot of time. That that piece of the loop gets left untied with continuous yes. improvement. Yes, that's cool. So that's the one. That's the one thing. Yeah. The other cool. thing I'm looking at is how to spread. I guess in geek terms. How to spread critical thinking faster and wider? Yes, inside organizations, and that's that's a really big thing. So that that touches on one of my pet peeves, which is best practices. Uh oh, and best practice is interesting, but best practices are not transferable mm, because every process is built around a culture, a context, a space, a, a labor mix. A technology mix, an equipment mix, and said, "Hey, this worked great right here. Let's just cut and paste it all through the company." Well, what's that all about? Every company has its own recipe of craziness. But, but even then, so I've been working with uh, companies with field offices, and and the uh, corporate people says we want exactly the same process in each field office. I'm thinking, well, that's not going to work. Yeah, I yeah, I see that too. Uh, because the field office. They're in different states, and they're working on things that have state regulations with guardrails on state regulations that are different from state to state. And they have different labor mixes, like they have more of this capability than that capability on state to state. So I'm thinking, what is so special about doing exactly the same thing everywhere? everywhere? What is so? It's easier to manage, good for you, but it's not creating the outcome you want. And we had some hot words, and... And I explained why this wasn't going to work. And they said, okay, what should we do? I said, give them the same performance goal. There you go. Set the target. We want to, we want to improve by 20%. We don't care how you do it, just so you're safe. <laughs> you do. Go <laughs> so figure it out, right? Yeah, don't screw up the customer. But we had a pilot that said, okay, how do we start thinking about improving performance? And then they went through that, and they would share with the other field offices. Yeah. And they said, you know, we don't, we're not trying to say take our solutions. You're welcome to them, but you don't have to take them. Yeah. What, but what, be what aware you, of them. What you need to do is think about the way we thought about it. Look at how we got data. Right. Your data is going to be different, but look at how we thought about getting data when there wasn't any data available. So you're 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 touching on a very sore spot for me because well, I once in a past life I was in a corporate continuous improvement function and they put out this scorecard every quarter. Oh my mm -hmm. God, that scorecard. 
<laughs> <laughs> what the scorecard did was ranked all of the plants against each other, right? And it was all based on who was most compliant to what our corporate function decided was what everybody should be doing. Wow. And you had plants who would bend over backward to get on top of the scorecard. Yeah. And you had plants who could care less. You know what was the interesting thing, though, about that whole thing was that Mm. the plants that were doing the best on the scorecard were doing the worst financially as a business. Well, I believe that, but I, I just that's just sad to hear again. Yeah, it was. It was. And uh yeah, takeaway for me is 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 along the lines that you're 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 explaining now is that every business is its own complex entity, beast. Right. <laughs> right. Right. And and there's a different problem facing every one of them. And they should be investing their limited resources in solving the problem that lie before them. Yes. Not trying to comply to some corporate function that's really irrelevant other than fighting for his own existence. You know what I mean? Yeah, so that's a good core piece. But then how you spread and spread fast is another element of that. I like what you're saying. So what I found is that these field offices started teaching each other. Wow. Okay. Interesting. And I left. <laughs> right. You're done. <laughs> so, And they could spread it faster than a mainstream consultant company could going from site to site, forcing in best practices. Yeah, and it's more fun for them. Yeah, yeah, it's more fun. It's more of a more of a real journey experience for them to go through that. Awesome. Okay, so tell me what you're most excited about for the future. Like, what's what's on the horizon for both? Those might be two different questions. So let me take about talk about what I'm excited about for the future, which is right in front of us now. Yes. So I've been thinking about the pandemic a lot, as everyone else has. But yeah, I've been thinking about what that means walking out of this. So I'm thinking about uh, a couple, about a couple of things. One is not too controversial and the other probably is. The, the one that's not too controversial is that I think we're going to have a challenge to the work. Yeah. What, what work should, should we be doing uh, a couple of different uh, angles? What work can we do at home? Yep. that we refused to even think about before because yep. we weren't down going down that lane. Right. So how do we start thinking about this differently? And then, more importantly, how do we manage the work at home? Because we just changed the process, we have to change the management. Yep. So I'm betting that 50% of the managers out there are going nuts right now. Losing their minds. Because, because they're used to managing by watching people do the work. Yep. Hey, what are you up to? As opposed to doing something else. They can't do, hey, what are you up to anymore in that, in that vein? So we've got to figure out and retool the management systems to adapt to the working environments now that people, now that we figured out that A, uh, people can work from home and B, maybe we ought to plan on people working from home because pandemics like this may return. So let's get prepared now. Man, I like where your head is at. You know, I feel much better about the uh, University of Michigan education system after hearing this. <laughs> well, I, that that was a very long time ago. Uh, yeah. But, but well, I, I went to Nebraska, so I'm a little biased. I'm a little biased. So. Yeah, I have I have a good buddy from Nebraska. I brought him to the big house. Oh, um, okay. 
maybe six years ago. I said, he, when uh, Nebraska got, got into the Big Ten, he said, I want to go to every single Big Ten stadium. I said, oh, man, see, I grew that, up in Chicago. So I, I grew up in Big Ten country and went to school in Nebraska. It was Big 12 at the time. Yeah. Uh, but I was I was happy to see them come in the Big Ten. Cause yeah, they, I, they belong there. They're coming back. I, I am absolutely optimistic they're coming back. They're going to be here. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So the, the other thing I'm looking at, which is much more controversial, I've just started thinking about it, is creating a, a proactive strategy to sign up ahead of time for the Wartime Production Act. Oh, interesting. I mean, ha- we know it's coming back. There's confusion about who should do what and when. Why don't companies who have somewhere in their vision statement or their mission statement saying, we care about our communities and our employees. If that's in your mission or, uh, or vision statement, part of that is now getting ready for <laughs> health crises. Yeah. And if you're capable of sewing, then you should sign up saying, I'm going to be making masks. There you go. If you're capable of mechanical stuff, you say, hey, I don't know if it's going to be a ventilator, but I'll probably be doing some of this stuff. What you got in that strategic uh, stockpile? Oh, maybe I can start making some of those. There you go. Wow. And and then testing it. I mean, the National Guard is out there every quarter getting ready. Yep. I just listened to um, something on uh, PBS last night about uh, the, the pandemic in Seattle, and they called patient one. The first patient, they were ready mm. because two weeks before, they knew it was going to hit Seattle. Yeah. So they said, okay, when it comes, what are we going to do? Well, and yeah, I mean, we, you know. Everybody was ready. Right, right. I mean, that, that shows that there was enough information out there for people to start preparing. It's just some some of us chose not to. Yes, but that not that the issue? I mean, what, what if they triggered the Wartime Production Act as it should have been triggered, would we actually know what to do? Mm. It's been 60 <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. So, so how do we think about this the way the National Guard does or the way that hospitals do when they have routine drills for local catastrophes? Hey, we have 150 people coming in from a train wreck. What are we going to do? They actually practice that all the time. That's an interesting so thought, man. Because why aren't we doing that? Now you got my mind going, right? Since since war for us became, you know, sit at your computer and control a drone to drop a bomb on somebody halfway across the world, perhaps we have gotten a little complacent in our readiness for war. Yeah, we just don't know what to do. Yeah. Hmm. So who, what, when, where, I have no idea. Yeah, interesting thought. So I, I really think that, that so that's that's what gets me excited about. This is could, could be some really cool stuff. Yeah. I, I do so, want to go into why you, or, or how you want, how you, as, as Bo Keith, want to approach, you know, driving that kind of change. But I think that's I enough. I have been challenged yesterday by my marketing person. I, I don't have a marketing staff, but I'm using them for this for something else. Yeah. He said, I started talking about this. He said, Bo, you need to write an essay. I said, what? To start, right. An essay. What's that? I, I, I don't know how to write an essay. No, <laughs> you need to write an essay and get it in someplace big. Yeah. Industry week or something. Just say, yeah, right. no, 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 big, big. Bigger than Wall that. Street Journal. Wall Street Journal. There you go. Okay. And just get it out. He said, has anyone been talking about this? No. Has Andrew Cuomo been talking about this? No. You need to talk about it. There <laughs> so it is. Said, Start the conversation. So last night, I started typing. That's a good piece because 
it just shows that we all have the power to drive change. Yeah. It's just knowing what yes. to do, right? What book would you recommend that we give a second look? Or maybe a first look? Maybe a first look. So it's it's out uh, as an ebook. It's almost out as a self-publicized book. Self-published book. Self-published. It's by a colleague of mine named Dan Markovitz. And the title of the book is The Conclusion Trap. Ah, interesting. Okay. And it... What's that about? Sounds interesting. So, Dan has done a great job of not talking in jargon and not talking lean speak, six sigma speak, continuous improvement speak. Japanese. And talking, talk Jap, no Japanese terms. <laughs> and he talks in English in business language and business jargon. Okay. And this is his way of talking about problem solving. Okay. The conclusion trap is jumping too fast to a solution without data. Oh my gosh, that never happens. Yeah, really. No, so we don't do that. Oh, I understand. I understand. So <laughs> people talk about that all the time. Right. But the cool thing about this is this is not written for geeks. This is written for business. Yes. And I think for those of us who have a hard time being passionate about what we know, but positioning it in such a way that the other people don't care. <laughs> that's the thing, right? And that's me. That's, that's me. That's geeking. <laughs> yes. Then take a look at this. And, and understand how he's approaching exactly the same thing, but from a different angle that's more palatable to people who don't want to hear about continuous improvement. Man, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah. You're right, because we have our own, like we, like we were talking before, we have our own language, lexicon, all that stuff, toolboxes. Yeah. But sometimes, and I, I, when I was first, uh, when I led my first lean implementation, if you want to call it that, at a company, I was working at Mars. And uh, we had a new supervisor come in probably a year into my, you know, rollout uh, mm-hmm. of the Western region. And one of the things he said to me is like, you know, I really don't like this lean stuff. It sounds it seems to me like a religion. Right. It's like it's mm-hmm. too complicated for me to understand. I just want to come in and do my job and keep things simple. He didn't say it in such eloquent words. Right. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. But he, he, that's a very valid point. Right. It shouldn't feel like a religion. To me, it should feel like fundamentally good business yeah uh but for yeah. some reason it's sort of branched off into its own its own beast of a thing that we could just talk about in common language i agree and if you want to see how how bad it really is just try to figure out where the continuous improvement discussions are in the executive suites right i mean it's subjugated it's no it's way down there that's Joe's job, like five levels down. That's he, he, He's the lean guy. Exactly. We hired a guy. No. We're done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to worry about anything. It, it's totally missing the point, I think, because of how we framed it a long time ago, and we haven't gotten out of that framing very well. We aren't very good at that. I think, you know, we probably have done, and I'm just thinking out loud here, we may have done a disservice by commoditizing lean and CI. Mm-hmm. We've commoditized it to a point where, oh, I can get a cheap one at the grocery store. Yeah. Right? And 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 uh, there's no difference between one and the next, right? There, there's, it's all a, just a commodity, right? It's all based, you know, how can how cheaply can I get one? Somebody in here. So it's that, and it's the mainstream consulting model. We do all the thinking. So that so too, right? It, it, it's never been 
a strategic need to to create that capability. It's never been sold to them that way because the people who are selling consulting are selling them doing all the thinking. Yeah, it's, it's like I'm going to fix everybody for you. Yeah, I have extra horsepower. They're going to do it for me. I don't have to worry about it. Yeah, either either, either I'm going to do it for you. I want to fix everybody for you. When the real truth is, to your point earlier, is it's you who need to change first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's a hard sale, <laughs> but it's the truth. But you can see this in centralized uh, continuous improvement staffs in a large corporation. Yeah. I get a phone call. Come fix this for me. Yep. Click. Where's that coming from? So, so it, they're seeing them as added horsepower to fix something and then go away. Yep. And the person who makes the phone call doesn't need to engage, doesn't need to challenge how he or she manages, doesn't need to do anything. It's a problem like, like whack-a-mole. Please come over here. I got a mole. It's like, a, it's like taking your car to a mechanic, right? Yeah. Yeah. Take you my business to a mechanic. They're going to tighten it up, tighten up some bolts, and I'm going to be on my way. Yep. Within an hour. Yep. Instead of saying, all right, what about the way I'm driving this thing is causing these problems? Yeah. And then, let me maybe ease off the brake a little bit, you know, ease off the gas on the acceleration and give myself more time to brake. And maybe that'll stop. The problem will stop happening to begin with. <laughs> yeah. So, OK, yeah. cool, man. Uh, so one more question before I let you get out yeah. of here. I know you got a lot yep. going on. You're preparing for webinars and all that fun stuff. On that note, what else you got coming up for events, speaking engagements, hosting, anything else? Well, the, the AME webinar is tomorrow, and it's kind of it, it's set up as a precursor to the workshops in October at their annual conference. AME asked everyone if they could do kind of a promotional webinar uh, that has, still has value and can entice people to show up in Toronto in October. So uh, mine's tomorrow, and I think it... Think it's online. I, I'm not sure what they're doing with it afterwards. The title of it is is uh, Can I Coach You Out of Lean Coaching? Oh, yeah. So I, I, I'm getting out there. I'm challenging some uh, some paradigms. Coach you out of lean coaching, man. Absolutely, that, absolutely. That's powerful. <laughs> no, no, no kata cards on my lanyard. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so, so, but it's meant to nudge people on what should you be doing. Yeah. As, as your work as a leader. So what? So okay. So what's the premise? Is it? Is it? Let me get you out of this lean bubble, and let's just focus on the right thing for you to do. It actually goes beyond that. Okay. One of the things that bothers me about when people teach leadership standard work, yep, is they add work mm. to their plate. And every other time we do standard work at the front line, we challenge the existing work and remove some. Mm. before we add in new. new work. Yeah, interesting. So my my premise is that we have been disrespectful to leaders and managers in how we approach leadership standard work Okay. because we've never challenged what they do now. And some of it no longer makes sense. Right. So lean coaching is just one example, just, just, just a, a, a blast famous example about uh, are you sure you're doing what you should be doing right uh because just i'll take lean coaching the kata card's wonderful yep it's got five questions on it and they see you coming they know you're gonna reach down to your lanyard <laughs> look at your kata card and ask the five questions yep and go away <laughs> right uh, 
Do you think they could do that by themselves at this point? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> you think they're already doing it by themselves because they know you're coming and they want to look good for you, so they're coaching each other already. Do you, <laughs> how, how can you find out? <laughs> so hey. so th- that's just an example. And, and huh. I'm not poo-pooing best intentions. Yeah, yeah. I'm just saying, hey, it's, it's time to rationalize what you're doing because you have good work you should be doing and you are overburdened. Hmm. So let's challenge our work and take some stuff away. Maybe not the coaching, but it's meant to be provocative. Very cool. What other events or speaking engagements do you have in the pipeline? I have an ASQ webinar on May 13th. The title is Scaling Change. So that goes back to how do we spread things quickly. Yeah, I like that, actually. And then uh, I talked about the AME workshops in October. Uh, I have two. They might go online we're not sure yet i just got the first nudge that if we have to go online can we the one that pairs with the uh can i coach you out of lean coaching is called the work of leaders and it's challenging their work and there's also one on a3 thinking that that's kind of a stock thing that i do that that uh, gets people thinking differently about how they build a3s yeah i like it that's that's the workshop and webinar series and then i'm creating uh this is part of my creativity just sitting back in the pandemic uh for absolutely no reason having this creative streak, I'm creating uh, 10 minute webinars mm. that talk about very specific thoughts, one thought from my own experiences that I use with my clients to help them move forward. And I think what I see now is a real opportunity for people for little webinars because everybody has stuff online but they might have some extra time. So if you think about Governor Cuomo's, one of his slides is building back better. If you want to build back better, then these six webinars can help challenge what you're doing now and help you build back better to a different place once we get out of the pandemic. There it is. And that's what I'm hoping will be helpful. I like like to say that luck happens when preparation meets opportunity. Oh. Well, that's a good one. And you, you can bet that opportunity is coming. Yeah. So this is being triggered May 4th through the California Polytech Institute, Cal Poly. My uh, good friend and professor, Eric Olson, chairs the Central Coast Lean Summit. Yep. And he's going to be triggering these. There's going to be every Monday for six Mondays, there's going to be one thought for 10 minutes. And then for his consortium, every Friday for six Fridays, I'm going to create an office hour where they come back and add questions or show some intermediate work, stuff like that. Yeah. And see what's oh, going man, on. that sounds that sounds good. Yeah, yeah. If I can help with that, I'd be happy to do so. Okay. Anybody listening who may have interest for that kind of thing. Sounds like it's going to be some real thought leadership. Prepare to be challenged in your way of thinking. <laughs> so anybody who listens to this show is comfortable being challenged in their way of thinking because there's some craziness coming out of this. So <laughs> so two, two things. Yeah. Uh, anyone can sign up for this. And if you go to the Central Coast Lean Summit or something like that, there'll be a piece on that for signing up. And also the, the, the physical videos, the, the Mondays, the six Mondays, are going to be available on YouTube as public information. Good. Well, cool. All right. Well, Bo, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Obviously, you've been at this for way longer than I have. And, you know, I've I've even begun to pick your brain 
uh, <laughs> on, on some of the stuff you've gone through, and so I can take more away. But uh, hopefully, we'll have more chances to catch up on this on this show, and maybe in other places to to really start dive deeper on some of those uh, some of those topics. So yeah. again, thanks thanks a ton. I really appreciate you coming out. Well, Calvin, I've enjoyed the opportunity, and it's been good talking to you. Absolutely, we'll be in touch. Okay. All right. Have a great one. Okay. Bye bye. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. This episode was brought to you by the good folks at Improver Technologies. If you like the show, you can find more just like it at Improver.com. That's I-M-P-R-U-V-E-R.com, where you can learn more, do more, teach more, and transform your world. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.